What I really needed was to recreate myself, which means to bring something new into the world that has never existed before. All right, today I have John Warlow, the best-selling author of the great book, which is one of my favorite books, Built to Sell. And this is a book about how to create a business that can thrive without you. And I can honestly tell you that this book changed my life, John. But today we're going to be talking about the book, The Art of Selling Your Business, which is winning strategies and secret hacks for exiting on top, which a lot of people have been asking me about selling the business, which is an entirely different language. Uh, so welcome, John. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Great to be with you too. And, um, you know, one, one of the things I, I was given your book, Built to Sell, as a, a gift from a friend. And in the inside of the book, he wrote me a message. And I opened this book again, because I read it a lot. You'll see it's, it's heavily used. It said, it said, this book has changed my life. Perhaps it'll change yours too. That was from my friend Rob. Thought so much of your system uh, and, your, and your philosophy about creating a, a, a business that's a real business. Um, and people have enjoyed this book and they're going to enjoy your next book, but I'm curious to connect the dots to what brought you to being a writer and a business expert in this particular niche. Yeah. You know, I, I've been through a couple of exits myself and I, and I think I learned, I, I craved, you know, they say you scratch your own itch. I craved more information. You know, I felt like everywhere I turned, somebody had their hand out. When I went to sell my last company, you know, I had a, a coach who was seemed to be pretty cozy with an M&A professional. The M&A professional had, you know, commissions that they were going to make from the deal. Uh, my banker didn't know much about it. My accountant knew nothing about selling a company. And so I just felt, and I couldn't, tell my employees. I couldn't ask anybody. I just felt very alone in the process. Yet I was very confused by the whole process itself, all the terminology. And, and, mm -hmm. and so I, you know, I just thought, you know, I sold my last company. I, I, I was in a position where I didn't need to necessarily work right away. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll write down some of this stuff and it'll help a few people. And that was, the genesis behind Built to Sell, and it's gone on to kind of create a whole momentum of its own. I think it's been translated in like 13 languages or something like that, which right. I still find crazy. But yeah, it's uh, it was really scratching my own itch, feeling like that there we needed more information out there about the final the stage of, of our careers as opposed to, there's a whole bunch of information. How do you start a business? How do you grow a business? Right. I was really more focused on, on how, do you, how do you exit it. I think your writing style, I don't know if you're a trained writer, I'm not sure, your writing style of telling that, that story in the book about the business owner who was me, like that guy was me and I had built a big business. I had 600 agents and brokers and, and it was by anyone's observation be what we call it successful, but I was unhappy. I had no free time. I was living a toxic lifestyle. I had no systems. I, if, I went, if I didn't show up to work, I didn't get paid. And so how did you decide to write that story and how to frame it like that rather than just rattle off step one through 10? Yeah, the story. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. And I, I'm glad that you were able to kind of pull yourself out of that, that quagmire. It sounds 
very common where on, a, on the surface businesses seem successful, but like the, the duck sort of paddling their feet underneath the water. You don't right. know how fast you're moving your feet to try to right. keep up. And I think a lot of business owners feel that way, and especially ones where it's a service business where clients are oftentimes sort of very demanding and everyone mm -hmm. wants a custom solution, et cetera. And so, you know, I've, as I mentioned, I've been involved in, in four different companies, one of which was actually an advertising and marketing agency, which is the, the story mm -hmm. in the book. So, you know, there's, there's autobiographical parts of that book sort of yeah, woven right. in along with lots of stories and lots of just observing other business owners. Mm -hmm. We used to do, you know, my last company was a, a quantitative market research business where we surveyed small business owners and, and we've, we provided that data back to subscribers who were usually mm -hmm. large enterprise companies like banks and credit card companies. And so we were getting to the point where we were surveying 10,000 business owners every single year. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, I sort of had a sense of how business owners were feeling. And uh, a lot of them felt kind of trapped by their business. They, they started with this notion of, well, like starting a business is going to make me free and I'm going to be financially free and I'm going to be able to live wherever mm -hmm. I want, do whatever I want. And then quickly they get into running the company and it becomes like an albatross around their neck. Like mm -hmm. they can't, like you said, you know, nothing happened unless you were there. Right. And uh, that's, a, that's a frustration. And how, how, how did that bring about this new project? The art of well, selling yeah. a business. It's yeah, the next so, logical step, it seems. Well, I, th I think so. So built to sell is about how do you build a valuable company? The Automatic Customer, which is a book I wrote in 2015, is about how do you accelerate the value of that business through recurring revenue? And then the art of selling your business is really about how do you harvest the value you've created? So it's one thing to think you've got a valuable business on paper. Mm -hmm. It's quite another to harvest. It's funny. I just did a podcast. I do a, a thing called Built to Sell Radio where I interview different entrepreneurs mm -hmm. every day, uh, every week at least. And uh, one of them I did yesterday is a guy who started a business called Sales Benchmark Index. And, and talking about harvesting and, and valuation, he had built the company and from the very beginning, he put a, an estimate of value on his business of 1.25 times revenue. So just a little more than one times revenue. And that was sort of how we went about thinking about the business. He brought partners in and shared equity with them based on that valuation formula. And he'd sort of done that for a period of 11 years. Well, he told me the story yesterday where he went to go sell the business and he kind of had in, in his mind sort of one to one, 1.2 times revenue. He sold his $30 million consulting company for $162 million. Oh, wow. So what is that? Like five, six times top line revenue? It completely was like mind blowing for him, the wow. value that he was able to get for this business. And it, and it just showed him that even though he built a really successful company, $30 million in revenue, like a really, really successful business, he didn't know much about what it was worth to someone else. And so right. there's just, I think, a, uh, a tremendous gap in, in knowledge about what, how do you sort of structure a business to maximize its value? So that, that was the impetus behind the, the new book is how do you harvest all this value you've created on paper? Yeah, because there's the art and the science of that calculation. I mean, the art is, I would imagine it's always... Is, is it's only worth what someone wants to pay for it. And the science I'm sure is justifying that value at some level. Um, You're right. 
you're right. There's a story in the book, um, a guy named Jeff Felberg built a company called Embanet, and they were, funny, they were doing websites for universities, right? In the mm -hmm. beginning, it was just, you know, web design, and they started putting online courses, the university's content into an online course, and they got an offer to acquire their business, and it was for around three times profit. And Felberg and his partner, Steve Wells, said, yeah, you know, it's kind of an average multiple. I'm not sure we want to do it. And, you know, we want, we'd really like to get a better price for our company. How do we do that? Well, they made some changes to the business model, but they also made a change to the way they talked about what they do. And this comes down to the mm -hmm. art of selling your company. They went from right. saying they're a graphic design shop and acquirers have a sort of valuation for graphic design shops as a service business that's not very high. They talked about and went from referring to themselves as a graphic design shop, and they started referring to themselves as leaders in the burgeoning e-learning category, mm. right? E-learning at the time, like Linda had just been acquired by LinkedIn and LinkedIn itself had just been acquired by Microsoft. It was a big, big consolidation in the e-learning industry. And because they were putting these courses for universities online, they could say, well, yeah, we're, we're kind of one of the market leaders in e-learning. Mm. Long story short, two and a half years after they declined an offer of three times EBITDA for their company, they accepted an offer of 13 times EBITDA mm. in part because it's the way they were positioning their business. And that's what I mean by the art versus the science of selling. Of course. Yeah. I mean, we teach selling in the outcome versus selling the, the hours and the effort and the time. I mean, people pay for the outcome. Uh, that's Absolutely awesome. Right. Tell me, tell me, uh, I've gotten this a lot too. Post pandemic, I mean, you had pandemic, and where I think thinks it seems like we're coming out of it. Tell me what the post pandemic business uh, market is like. People buying and selling businesses. Anything's changing? Opportunities. Yeah, threats? I mean, a couple things. We we've just looked at the data out of our. Uh, so, so my day job, I run a, a software company called Value Builder. We have business owners use our questionnaire. We've had something like 10,000 of them complete the Value Builder questionnaire over the last 16 months. And so we decided to compare and contrast the, the data from people who completed the, the intake questionnaire prior to the announcement of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then the nine months during the pandemic. And, and we're still in it, obviously, but this is, we decided to kind of analyze the data and kind of compare and contrast. Two things popped to mind. One is that business owners have moved up their sell-by date by about 20%. So in other words, they're, they're planning to sell about 20% sooner. The second thing that popped when we analyzed the data was that the proportion of business owners who now plan to sell their business to a third party rather than give it to their kids or do a management transition has gone up. So now sell to a third party is like 60% of the, the business owners in the market and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, do a family transition is down around 12%. So we're seeing business owners really want to sell to a third party and not transition to their kids and they want to do it sooner. And then kind of adding sort of jet fuel to this, of course, mm -hmm. is the, interest rates being so low that that allows acquirers to finance these businesses. Mm -hmm. And then you add in the SBA who in the United States at least has started to, you know, finance in a, in a much more aggressive way, the sale of these businesses. And so it's just created this, uh, this confluence of factors that I think is making a very, very active M and a market mm -hmm. right now. Lots of businesses selling. I had a call last night with my brother 
who owns a small insurance agency. He's not very small. It's a good size for a big, he's the biggest agency in a little town. So he's got a, he's got a nice business. And, and uh, during the pandemic, uh, he had a very old or he had an older, um, more mature feel for it. So they weren't necessarily ready for the online grind mm-hmm. or even functional. And he took a call from a, I mean, he was, he and his partner, I think were looking at selling potentially and they took a call on the wrong day or the right day, no matter how you look at it. And he was worried of whether or not to even admit to the guy who called, who was a major player in a bigger city down, down the street that he was interested. So how does a business owner, I said, Tim, you either, I mean, it's, it's a risky conversation to let someone know you're for sale. Like, how do you navigate through that, that thought? that, Hey, I think I might want to sell my business, but I may not want the market to know I have, or my employees to know that I'm interested in doing that. Yeah, for sure. Look, there, there's nothing that precludes you for having, from having a conversation with an industry peer, right? Mm-hmm. So that is a very common, uh, uh, approach by an acquirer wanting to have a one-on-one sort of relationship with an owner. The problem with that is that it, it, it effectively is how a sophisticated acquirer will lure you into something called a prop deal. And a prop deal is where the acquirer negotiates just with you. And the problem with that is that it's a recipe for making sure that the acquirer provides the lowest possible valuation for your company and often retrades on that after signing a letter of intent, meaning they lower their price because they know they're the only game in town and your brother is has gotten sort of suckered into this or lured into this. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd much rather see him if he did want to sell his brokerage to really be proactive and put it on the market, hire an Mm -hmm. M&A professional to kind of market it uh, to multiple buyers. And that way, even if you were to sell to the same person who approaches him, he's going to get better deal terms, probably a higher valuation. Uh, And so that's, that's the difference between being on your front foot and being on your back foot. That being said, look, I don't think, you know, there's nothing that, 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 would preclude from Tim from having a conversation with mm. that acquirer. I would just go to that conversation loaded with questions for that acquirer so that you could dominate the conversation so that mm. you don't have to give a lot of information away. Cause information in a, in a sale of a business is a little bit like, um, uh, clothing in a striptease. You, you want right. to make sure it comes off slowly. <laughs> and so in that case, <laughs> I would want Tim to, to make sure he was not the one providing a lot of information. In fact, he was asking questions of the acquirer, like, what do you see as the strategic fit between our companies? What do you think what the future would look like? How does our industry play out for you in the next five years? Like really peppering him with questions. So that leads me to timing, you know, when the right time is for him. Because I think, you know, as we go post pandemic, the world's going to change, but not back to the way it was. I think a lot of companies made a breakthrough on the possibility of, of closing, you know, physical spaces and doing more virtual stuff. Uh, like let's pretend he doesn't want to make the adjustment. You, you have the timing. When does he do it? Because he may, you know, what I think, he, what I think was exposed is he doesn't have the systems that are in your first book to get the value that he wants or the service models, which we're talking about tonight. And then and then what, mis- what tricks or mis- what mistakes? I mean, he doesn't want to make a mistake. I don't want to make mistakes. Like what are mistakes are people making? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the question around timing is an interesting one because as I mentioned that the, the, 
the landscape, the macroeconomic environment right now is really good to sell a company. And the other thing I would say that in my experience, a lot of owners that I speak with really want to time the sale of their, their company, right? They're, they're, they're like, they want to time it when the market peaks for their business. They're on a, on a winning streak. The macroeconomic environment is good. They want to kind of have all those things coalesce and then sell their company. What I usually mention to them is like, first of all, nobody's that good at being able to predict, you know, when those three things are all going to happen. Secondly, the, the best time to sell your company is when somebody's buying it. So when somebody's making you an offer, you're on your, you, you, know, right. you don't have to grovel at their knee and, and ask mm -hmm. them to buy your business. They're coming to you, in which case you've got negotiating leverage. I'm reminded of, of uh, a guy that's in the book and, and someone I interviewed called Rand Fishkin. So Rand had a, had a, a little software company called SEO Moz, built it up to about $5 million in revenue. And in his mind, his, his, was, his was a SaaS company, a software as a service business, which as you know, has like really high valuations. And right. so he had been told that it was worth, could be worth as much as four times top line revenue. Now, Rand was growing very quickly at this time. So he figured, well, he's at 5 million now. He figured he could get to 10 the next year. And so in his mind, his company was worth maybe as much as 40 million bucks. Hmm. He gets a call from a guy named Brian Halligan. Halligan is a um, is the co-founder of HubSpot, one of those all in market, all, you know, all in one marketing software. And Halligan says to to, uh, to Fishkin, "Look, we want to buy your company. We're willing to spend twenty five million bucks in cash and HubSpot stock. That's that's a lot of money." <laughs> and Fishkin yeah. is is looking at this and saying. Well, you know, I want 40, you know, that's kind of more my number. And Halligan says, like, my final number is 25. It's still five times your top line revenue. Like, it's mm -hmm. a fair offer. And Fishkin says, no, I'm not going to take it. And goes away and instead raises venture capital, takes the VC money and invests in a bunch of different businesses. Unfortunately, the businesses, most of which fail to meet his expectations, he starts to spiral into a, a period of depression. And uh, so much so that the VCs remove him as the CEO. Mm -hmm. And I asked Fishkin, you know, how did that impact the value of your Moz shares? And he said, well, they're, they're probably not worth anything anymore. And I said, what do you mean they're not worth anything? He said, well, the VCs invested with preferred shares. And so they're going to get a preferred return before I get anything. And, and I said, what would that offer from HubSpot have been worth? And he said, well, it's, it's probably close to 200 million bucks based on the appreciation mm -hmm. of HubSpot stock. Right. And I tell that story and I would encourage you to tell Tim that story because, you know, the best time to sell your business is when someone's buying. And mm -hmm. I, I still would definitely create competitive tension, try to get mm -hmm. multiple bidders at the table. Mm -hmm. But if you get a bidder, take that seriously because there's no better time. What's your experience been? I mean, you, you, you got people coming to you for this topic of a business owner saying, look, I've had enough. I want out and just telling their employees, like, bear with me. I'll, I'll make sure you're treated well. Like what's the strategy there? I think the, I mean, and the dynamic as it relates to the new book, how, what role the employees pay in the value and the continuity post employer yeah. uh, or post owner. Yeah, it's, um, 
you know, there's a few things you want to keep confidential when you go to sell your company and, uh, and telling your employees, unfortunately, is one of those, one of those, those, those areas where the right answer, the morally correct answer is not the strategically sound answer. Morally, mm-hmm. you know, you want to tell your employees, right? They're the ones who brought you this far. You wouldn't mm-hmm. be where you are without them. They're friends or family members in many cases. The last thing you want to do is, is, is have this mega, mega secret. Right. However, you, you just really, you can't tell them because the moment you tell them is the moment they start brushing up their LinkedIn profile. They start taking their industry yeah. knowledge and, and, and shopping their experience to your competitors. Your competitors mm-hmm. find out. And unfortunately, you undermine your negotiating leverage when your mm-hmm. employees know you're for sale. The other thing that you do not want to do is let an acquirer talk to your employees. I have, uh, there's a story in the book where a private equity group targeted a specific industry and they used the veil of an acquisition in order to cherry pick and recruit employees. So they said, oh, we're, we're thinking of buying a business in your industry. And they put together an IOI, an indication of interest, where they said, like, we'd, we'd like to buy your business and we'd like to pe- you know, spend X amount of money on, on buying it. And of course, that, got, that lit the owner's eyes on fire and they, they thought, oh, this is fantastic. I'd love to have the conversation. They then this proceeded to interview the management team of all these companies they were speaking with. And all they actually spoke to 80 different management teams. They made two offers. Those deals closed. The other 78 companies were where they fished for employees. So they went out and stole employees from the 78 companies who they'd interviewed because they didn't sign an NDA. They didn't Mm -hmm. sign anything that would preclude them from doing that. And it was all because the owner had sort of been romanced into believing that they were going to be acquired. And so it's, you know, the way and how you tell your employees is a critical component to, uh, Mm -hmm. to getting this right. I can see why you call her an art. (laughs) (laughs) sometimes sometimes not right that's what art is art's a art's a a combination of of uh, wisdom and and science to create art it's not exact um how do people get a hold of you the best place to go is built to sell.com if any of these stories like Rand's story and and uh, and others are interesting we do a uh, a new case study every week of an owner who has sold their company. And so if you opt in, i.e. like you provide your email address, mm-hmm. uh, we'll send you free the, each, each episode. So, uh, uh, so that's probably the best place to find me. Built do, you to sell do, do you do any training for business owners or advisors to business owners on your, on your trilogy, on your, on your three books? Do you train them to yeah. other than the books? Yeah, I mentioned in the beginning, my day job is I run this company called Value Builder, and we license that to advisors who want to help business owners uh, improve the value of their company leading up to an exit. So we have a lot of financial advisors, a lot of business consultants uh, who use the Value Builder system as a way to start a conversation with a business owner about the value of their company. So yeah, folks interested in that, it's just valuebuilder.com. Oh, nice. I took the uh, certified family business specialist course. Okay, great. At the American College. And there was yeah. one on business valuation. And at the time, I was going through a divorce. 
So I see all the, you know, the, the, the complexities of valuing a business is, is art and science as well, right? Um, but I found out that there's two different, there's a value if you're going to sell it and you want all the money and there's another value that you're going to tell the courts if you're getting divorced. It's, <laughs> it was it's slightly different numbers. <laughs> yeah, it was a funny thing. Hey, I got to tell you, thank you for the work you do. Indirectly and directly, you save lives. You, you help people transform. And you want to get a copy of this book. And there's going to be links in the notes on how to get a hold of John, his courses, his social media, and uh, website. So thank you, John. Terrence, it was a pleasure.